Welcome to the Davy Tree Expert Company's podcast, Talking Trees. I'm your host, Doug Oster. Each episode showcases one of Davy's certified arborists sharing advice with everyone about caring for your trees and landscapes. We'll talk about everything from introduced pests, seasonal tree care, deer damage, how to make your trees thrive, and much, much more. Tune in every Thursday to learn more because here at the Talking Trees podcast, we know trees are the answer. Well, I'm excited this week to be joined by Adam Baker. He's a technical advisor for the Davy Tree Expert Company. We're going to talk all about how trees help butterflies and pollinators. But Adam, I have to tell you, I planted a Stewardia tree two years ago, and it is covered in flowers right now. And I can see the bees enjoying that tree. And I'm just overjoyed. That's awesome, Doug. I'm glad you're experiencing some pollinators on your own landscape. Uh, the Stuarcha seems to be a, a pretty attractive one. So, you know, underused in the landscape, and I'm still wondering about its hardiness. But you know, I had to give it a shot. I get I put it in a protected spot. I think I got it in the right spots. But we'll see as we get down the road when we get a hard winter or a tough summer. So let's talk a little bit about pollinators and butterflies in general. How how do trees work for them? You know, when we think about pollinators, a lot of times we, we're thinking flowers, you know, in, in the garden, but trees do a lot for pollinators, right? Right. So, I mean, most of the trees that we're familiar with are going to be in that same group. The angiosperms are going to be creating uh, nectar and pollen sources uh, that that can support a lot of different pollinators. And there's this... There's this uh, fine relationship between the types and the forms of the flowers, as well as what types of bees and what types of pollinators are able to utilize them. So different types of flowers will attract different types of bees. And what's kind of great about trees, if you think about one single tree with thousands and thousands of blooms on it, if you were to lay that canopy out onto the ground, you know, you would get almost an entire meadow you know, whereas it would take hundreds of plants to create that same sort of floral resource that you get with just the blooms from one tree. So what is that term that you used at the at the beginning of, of the answer? Uh, angiosperm, just the, the flowering, uh, what we typically think of, of, of a plant with flowers. Uh, you know, we have the conifer groups and the, and the angiosperm groups, which is essentially just flowering plants. So... Do you have any specific trees that you like to recommend uh, for for people that want to help pollinators? Yeah. So as far as the the floral resources are concerned, I think the ideal goal for the landscape is to create a landscape that has floral resources, that nectar and that pollen from early spring to late fall. That way there's always something there for pollinators to forage on. Uh, some of the, the plants that I like a lot, I really like uh, red buds early in the year. Uh, they're very important for a specific type of bee called the andrenids. Are also, uh, they are known as the mining bees or the ground dwelling bees. Uh, if you go out in early spring, you see a bunch of things that look like little anthills. You see a bunch of insects hovering over the ground. Those are those really early season andrenids and things like the red bud are going to be very important for that group because they're going to fade off some way around uh, mid-June. Um, and that's kind of uh, the time span that they're going to be active in the environment. Uh, beyond that, uh, I really like things uh, like the uh, winged sumac. Winged sumac, uh, 
was one of the plants that I surveyed that had one of the greatest uh, visitations of, of any of the plants we looked at. Uh, I guess I should preface this, but, <laughs> but uh, so anyways, when I was a, an undergraduate student at the University of Kentucky, I was involved in a project where we were trying to quantify the communities of bees on common and not so common landscape trees and shrubs. So what we did was we found 75 species of trees and shrubs, went out to five different locations and sampled bees off of all of these different plants. So we could build these community lists and we could also look at the overall attractiveness of these. And one of the ones that stood out in that was that wing sumac. So the wing sumac, is that the sumac that I know that just kind of grows wild and has kind of the red flowers on there? Or is that a cultivated variety? Uh, so potentially it could be one of those uh, that you see growing out there, but there are many different species from the, the staghorn and, and others. Um, I like the wing sumac because it has that very, uh, I think it's Rus glabra is the species, and it's got a very shiny leaf and it has the, that wing connecting between all of those little leaflets. Um, and it, it's a little bit smaller than some of the ones like the staghorns can get uh, rather big and unruly, and that's probably what you're seeing on the on the side of the the highway and such. Um, so, as I mentioned, you know, during this this survey of 75, you know, landscape uh, woody trees and shrubs, uh, the wing sumac was one of the most impressive that I saw throughout the entire investigation. Uh, there were so many bees on it; they were almost carrying away this planting of of wing sumac. Um, it can be a little bit unruly, so if you do plant it, put it in a place where it's not going to be able to spread underground, uh, and you can be able to control it a little bit. Um, but other plants that that turned out to be uh, really attractive uh, were, oh, let me think here, let me pull it out. Uh, the things like, uh, if you like a more of a sprawling sort of uh, understory type tree, uh, slash shrub. The uh, uh, bottle brush buckeye was one of my favorites. It's got these really great, tall, white, panicle flowers. Um, and it's that's very, very attractive to not only bees, but also a bunch of bu uh, butterflies as well. And then one that's that's really great for the late season uh, that we noticed was the seven suns flower. This one's going to be uh, a non-native tree. But uh I think it's okay to sprinkle in a little bit of non-native trees uh, as long as it fulfills an ecological niche that's not fulfilled by our native plants. Uh, so this particular tree blooms in you know very late summer, early fall, and there's not a whole lot blooming. And it's great for bees at the end of the season, as well as it's great for migrating monarch butterflies and all those other pollinators holding on at the end of the season. Yeah, so let's talk about that end of the season for something like a monarch butterfly, you know, we're going to, we'll get into host plants and that sort of thing. And gardeners are, are, you know, planting host plants for pollinators, but that food source at the end of the season is important too, right? Yeah. So, I mean, if we use uh, the monarch butterfly in particular, as an example here, uh, they really need uh, two important things throughout the year. They, they need to have their host plants available when they're in the reproductive, straight, reproductive stage. And they also need to have rich nectar sources available for them in early spring and in that fall migration uh, because they use that nectar to fuel all of their flight. Those carbohydrates in the nectar are going to be very important for sustaining flight. 
Uh, and it's also really good for things uh, like social bees that really need to to finish the season strong, you know, stocking up their stores so they can remain strong and overwinter successfully. I'm really excited because I have a Heptacodium, Seven Sunflower, and a Bottle Brush Buckeye in my landscape. And that Bottle Brush Buckeye actually will kind of lay down on the ground and root and sometimes make another shrub. And so I've been making more of that way, but that one gets pretty big, right? Uh, yeah, it can get a little uh, pretty big, but generally it likes to hang out in the understory area. I think it's a great sort of alternative for a, a screening. Uh, you know, people you know, generally use a lot of like arborvitae and things that, you know, things like bagworms love to eat. Whereas, you know, something like the bottle brush buckeye can and add interest in, in the shape of the foliage, as well as uh, that sprawling sort of form. And then, like I said, those flowers during the heat of the summer are really, really attractive and they draw in a lot of uh, swallowtails and things like that to feed on them. When you did that research, were you surprised by the results or was this what you thought would be the, the plants that were preferred by pollinators? Well, when we, when we started this research, there's uh, tons and tons of different lists online and we call it the list mania. You can find them everywhere where uh, people can create their own anecdotal based lists. And, you know, things change throughout the landscape just because you see a lot of things on your Stowarcha in your backyard in particular that may not be the rule across the landscape. So our aim was to create the first science based list. Uh, like I said, we had five sites for all of the different trees. We checked the visitation as well as the communities of bees on them. And, uh, you know, coming into this, there's some that you would think that would be highly attractive. Uh, you know, things like the uh, tulip poplar has a lot of nectar, but for whatever reason in that Ohio River Valley region, that one was not very attractive. That may be because there's other sources that are more attractive at the time. Maybe they have different metabolites or different, uh, you know, proteins in there that the bees are after. And then some of the ones that that really impressed us were like the bottle brush buckeye, things like uh, St. John's wort, the frondosum uh, cultivar especially, was just extremely attractive to bumblebees. And one of the ones that was really interesting was the uh, the Philadelphus, the, the mock orange. Uh, when we started sampling that, we were almost getting collections of bees all from the exact same genus and species which its genus is, or its species is actually Philadelphus. It's the mock orange megachylid bee. And it's a specialist resin bee that scrapes the resin from mock orange flowers. And almost every single bee, about 95% of the bees we collected off of all of the mock oranges were all of that same species. And what's pretty interesting is, you know, we'll find a mock orange. There may not be another one within a mile, uh, yet we still find the specialist bee on there. So there's a very, uh, intrinsic relationship between these these two species oh that that is really cool and i have mock orange too in my garden so this this is good stuff let's talk a little bit just about bees in in general and and people should not be afraid of of bees they're just they're doing their work and they help us garden right so bees in general they get a bad rap and that's mainly from from one uh one guy out in the in the field, and that's the the yellow jacket. The yellow jacket is generally mistaked as a bee, and that one is going to be much more aggressive than any of the bees. Uh, generally, when pee, um, when bees are pollinating, uh, they are they are very docile. 
you know, fuzzy bumblebees. Uh, I've been known to even, you know, give them a little pet when they're on their flowers. And uh, they they don't mind at all. They're they're very uh, unless you're inside their nest, unless you're you're causing trouble to their their colony, they are not going to sting you. Now that being said, most bees that are in the landscape are actually solitary bees as far as the numbers of species. Um, we think about when we think about bees, we think about things like honeybees and bumblebees, which are the the big social groups of bees. So they have the greatest number, but they actually the greatest number of species are all solitary bees, and that includes the leafcutter bees, the mason bees, the digger bees, the mast bees, and the small little metallic green sweat bees that we see in the summer. Um, so bees are really interesting. They have a, they're basically pollinating machines. They have all sorts of different morphological traits that help and facilitate that pollination. One of the things that they used are these hooked hairs that grab onto pollen. Uh, for instance, the, the megachylid group or the leafcutter bee group, uh, they have almost a set of bristles on the bottom side of their abdomen that just comb right over the top of the flowers and pick up uh, a lot of pollen. Things like the bumblebees and the honeybees have what they call curbiculum or pollen baskets that are these flattened spaces uh, on, the, on their back hind legs where they can store pollen and carry back to the nest. And then bees also have, they're all, they come in all different shapes, sizes, and colors. Uh, and then one of the things that's really cool with them is their mouth part sort of informs the type of flowers that they can visit. So generally there's, there's bees with really, really long tongues and there's bees with short tongues, and they can only use certain types of flowers. Now, of course, not all bees agree with this. Um, so things like bumblebees, if they go into a flower, their mouth part is just too big. You know, think of like a long, skinny trumpet flower. They'll actually just go in, cut the nectary open with their mandibles, and uh, engage in what we call nectar robbing, which... Uh, is good for them, but provides no pollination services for the plants. Well, let's just talk about the importance of attracting pollinators. I, I mean, in general, gardeners and, and people that, that, that love nature, love trees, should want to encourage pollinators, right? Uh, certainly. Uh, generally, the more biodiversity on your landscape, the more healthy that landscape is going to be. You know, sterile environments should be left for places like operating rooms, whereas the outdoors should be filled with with insects and pollinators. Uh, and those pollinators are going to be just an indicator of that health of that ecosystem. Um, so, you know, we maybe we can step away from the traditional American landscape with the manicured uh, monoculture turf systems and maybe the same species of trees. Uh, especially get away from things like the Bradford pears and some of those non-natives that we're planting along the streets. And maybe think about getting a little more biodiversity in our landscapes. With uh, We can do that through trees and shrubs. We can do that through uh, perennials and annuals. Um, and then just sort of mix that landscape to make it uh, both aesthetically pleasing for yourself and, and for your, your mental state and your stress and all that kind of stuff as well as making it an attractive buffet for our pollinators. Oh, Adam, we've talked so much on this podcast about Bradford pears. Oh, and I think every arbor, every arborist and every scientist that I've talked to, they just, they hate that tree and that tree is so problematic. But let's talk a little bit about in the landscape, how about uh, host plants for pollinators? 
Certainly. So, you know, generally when we think about host plants, you know, the one that comes to mind first is the milkweed for the monarch butterflies, but lots of different trees can act as host plants uh, for particular species here. Uh, for instance, hackberry, although not the most desirable species for some, uh, is the host plant for a lot of things like question marks, mourning cloaks, uh, the Hackberry Emperor, the Tawny Emperor. Uh, another great one, I think, is the pawpaw tree, which uh, creates delicious fruits for one, as long as you can get to them before the squirrels do. And they are host plants to the zebra swallowtail, which is one of the most charismatic butterflies we got around. Uh, things like the black cherry and tulip tree are great for the eastern tiger swallowtails. Uh, spice bush is another one of my favorites. Got that very fragrant lemony uh, foliage. And that's going to be a host plant for our spice bush swallowtails. And if you like the little tiny blue and silver butterflies that you see fluttering, uh, usually close to the ground, things like dogwoods and black cherries are also going to provide uh, habitat for them. Uh, but not only uh, just the foliage as a host food source, the architecture of the tree itself creates habitat for things like birds and insects and, and other creatures that can use that space inside the architecture of the tree. Well, we've talked on the show before about pawpaws and listeners couldn't see, but when you mentioned pawpaw and we can see each other, I'm, I'm raising my hands up in the air and shaking it. Yeah. Pawpaws, you know, that that's a tree that is underused in the landscape, but that is a wonderful, wonderful tree. And when you get two of them and they pollinate and that fruit is to die for, and it's a native too. Yeah, and what I love about those too, it, it creates all sorts of interest. It's got a very interesting, like oblong uh, leaf shape. If you crumple up the leaf, it smells like green peppers, which is great when you're walking around with your kids or grandkids. You can take off a little piece of foliage and you know let them experience that. Same thing with like the spice bush, and, and then a lot of these caterpillars too uh, that I'd mentioned that's on the spice bush and, and pawpaw have these really cool caterpillars that look like little snake mimics. Uh, they're almost like little uh, anime or cartoon characters. So they're quite beautiful as well. So let's talk about uh, how you got into this. Does this go back to childhood or does this become uh, something later in your life? Uh, well, I mean, as a, as a child, I grew up in southwest Michigan. And, uh, you know, we lived uh, in a, an interesting habitat sort of between the dunes and the forest systems of Michigan. Um, we had a, a bog that was right behind our house. So I spent Lots of time hanging out in the bog, uh, precariously climbing through the the weaved uh, button bush roots over the sphagnum uh, uh, moss mats. Um, so, yeah, I've always had an interest in nature and insects. Um, I really was into you know turtles and snakes and the, you know, the herpetology stuff back in the day. And then I actually went uh, to University of Kentucky to pursue a degree in environmental journalism and environmental literature. Um, and at that point, I started working in a entomology lab. Uh, the first one I worked in uh, was looking at a project that was looking at the impacts of the hemlock woolly adelgid on the stream systems of eastern Kentucky. So we're comparing deciduous dominated streams with the hemlock dominated streams. And we're looking at what they call the benthic invertebrates or the larval stages of insects that are living and interacting in that environment and we were comparing the numbers of feeding guilds. 
uh, from there, I got a job in uh, Dan Potter's lab, uh, looking at that bee issue, looking at the communities of bees on the plants, as well as looking at the way that insecticides translocate from the woody tissues into the pollen and nectar. And then from there, uh, he received a grant to look into monarch butterfly uh, conservation on places like golf courses and, and other urban environments. And at that point, I was, I was graduating out and I accepted a position as a graduate student in his lab. Um, so this is uh, kind of a perfect place for me to be because it, it mixes in the science as well as the storytelling. Uh, the monarch butterfly, of course, has a very attractive and, and interesting story, uh, and it also connects people with nature. You know, we use it uh, to inform our scientific literacy early on. We've all had the monarch caterpillar in our elementary classrooms go from the hungry caterpillar to the chrysalis and then emerge. Uh, and still today, uh, we continue that education at, at all sorts of arboreta and zoos and places where they have installments where they create the monarch habitats or monarch way station habitats that generally have some educational signage uh, with that. So what I was really looking at is, is how uh, we can use the ecology of the monarch butterfly to inform our conservation practices. So essentially, I was investigating how the monarch butterfly actually finds and utilizes its milkweed and then incorporating that into our monarch uh, conservation garden design. You know, as we finish up and we're talking about pollinators, for homeowners, talk about the importance of creating this environment for pollinators and for the most part, that should be chemical free, right? If you're if you're trying to help a pollinator. Right. So when you're building your landscape for pollinators, uh, you want to choose uh, plants that are going to be attractive, but not inherently buggy or covered in pests. So you won't ever have to have the uh, need to treat or to apply any sort of insecticides for these habitats. Uh, the fact that you're seeing leaves chewed up, the fact that you're seeing frass and the and some of the foliage torn up is a good thing. That's what you want to happen in the environment. Um, if you, uh, like I said, if you want that sort of pristine aesthetic, choose plants that are not going to be attracting things to eat as foliage. If you want to have that more interesting uh, ecological experience, you want to get out and be in a, a observer in the garden and see some of the really interesting relationships between the plants and the animals. Choose those ones that are going to act as host plants as well as those floral resources. So we definitely want to minimize those pesticides uh, in our pollinator habitats. And then beyond just the, you know, the value for the insects themselves, there's lots of, there's a, a body of literature out there that looks at how uh, more biodiverse landscapes influence uh, our human health and wellness. Uh, there's lots of studies looking at uh, measuring stress hormones compared to being in landscapes with high biodiversity uh, versus uh, low biodiversity. Uh, it helps lower stress and just overall uh, affects our mental wellness. Adam, that is great stuff. Appreciate your time. Learned a lot, and I'm sure that our listeners did too. Thanks so much for sharing your information with us. Hey, thanks for having me, Doug. Tune in every Thursday to the Talking Trees podcast from the Davy Tree Expert Company. I'm your host, Doug Oster. 
I'm excited for next week's show as we discover a great list of drought-tolerant trees. Very important these days, that's for sure. And as always, we'd like to remind you on the Talking Trees podcast, trees are the answer. <laughs>